Thank you for joining us around the fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? First thing in the morning, every morning, Grace went to see her son. She'd plan to kiss and hold his chin and remind him how much she loved him. Sometimes she'd sing to him or tell him a story. Mommy's here, she would say, even though he couldn't hear her. She had moved with Paul across the country into a tiny apartment she didn't like. They'd only dated a few weeks, but he tore her away from everyone she knew. For a number of reasons, most of the people she'd loved throughout her life had disappeared. Only a few months after they'd settled into the new place, Paul disappeared too. And Grace was alone, to grieve a relationship that never was. She worked long hours to barely cover the rent and ached for connection. Calls back home went unreturned, and the dark blanket of loneliness grew heavier with each day spent on her own. She couldn't blame them for ignoring her. After all, she disappeared. Several weeks after Paul had gone, the apartment began to rock back and forth like a great ship riding the waves of the storm. Grace stumbled to the toilet just in time, retching into the bowl and finally calming the waters. Never in her life had she dealt with nausea like this, and she began to suspect what she assumed would be impossible. Yet the test confirmed it. She was pregnant. By some wild chance, Paul had left something behind after all. So Grace did everything to prepare both herself and her home for the impending arrival. She'd give this child the life she'd never had and fill their days with love. He arrived that winter right on schedule, and the birth was quick and easy. Grace and Christopher spent their first two years learning and growing and loving together. She did everything to show that he could trust her and love her, and she would never disappear. But that's a promise he couldn't make in return. A short bout of illness escalated rapidly, and the poor boy lost his life without ever setting foot in the hospital. Grace begged him to open his eyes, or to smile, anything. The boy was gone, but she wasn't ready to let him go. Grace tucked him into bed, kissing his cold forehead, and hurried to the library. She immersed herself in ancient rituals and texts, visiting occult shops across the city and reading handwritten notes and translations, She studied black magic and witchcraft. Along the way, those she spoke with warned of the possible dangers ahead, but Grace wouldn't listen. With only a few days of his passing, 
she'd located one of the last remaining copies of a long-forgotten book of dark magic and worked through every page. Some were illegible, while others were scribbled with updates and additional notes. Finally, she found a conjuring spell that seemed to offer what she desired. Grace could never explain how she did it, but somehow it worked. She guided Christopher's faint, lost soul back to his body. His eyes opened and he smiled. The mother and son embraced and danced and laughed and ran and played. Grace was overwhelmed and nearly giddy. Could she simply pretend it never happened? And could the rules of the underworld really be so plain? The boy didn't seem to remember anything, and she preferred it that way. She wanted him to live the carefree life a child deserves without the weight of the world on his shoulders. Each night, they fell asleep cuddled together in bed as Grace read aloud from his favorite book. She was so happy, so content. Here in her home was an angel on earth. But on their fourth day together, Grace stepped from the bedroom to begin the coffee and returned to wake her son. She found the room stale, nearly rancid. Plugging her nose, she rushed to the window, inhaling the fresh air from outside. The noise caused Christopher to wake, and he sat up with a loud smile. Without even trying, Grace displayed one to match. They'd start their day with a walk in the park. Hand in hand, they wandered in the winter sun. Each time they came upon a group of children, Grace would introduce her son and ask if they wanted to play. But every time, the kids politely declined with wide eyes. As they continued their stroll, they came upon a bench. Grace lifted Christopher to sit next to her and looked at him in the sunlight. His face was pale almost completely without color, and beginning to sink. His nose was running heavily. She removed his scarf, wiping the dribble away, but the skin of his upper lip began to pull away too. Christopher winced in pain, but held still. She looked around. Why was everyone staring? They'd better get home for lunch. He sat like such a good boy while she made a large pot of noodles, but didn't have an appetite when it came time to eat. As she drew him a bath, he began to vomit, heaving red and brown and green and black into the toilet bowl. Grace covered her mouth. She didn't want to scream. Finally, he stopped and fell to the floor with exhaustion. She picked him up, hushing his cries, and put him in the bath, returning with a cloth to wash his face. She dipped it into the warm water and began to wipe away the vomit. She had barely made contact with his cheek when a large chunk of skin slipped off and plopped into the water, 
instantly turning the entire bath red. Now she couldn't help but scream. She slammed the bathroom door behind her as her child gurgled and wailed. With a trembling voice, she called back inside to her son, promising that she'd be right back. She hurried to her room and took a box from under her bed, placing the giant rotting book from inside it onto her covers. She flipped to the page she had bookmarked and read everything to herself again and again. Finally, she realized what she had misunderstood. Grace had never brought her son back to life. She had simply brought his soul back to his body. She returned to the bathroom and wrapped what was left of her child in a towel, carrying him back to his room. And she continued loving him and comforting him as his body swelled and leaked and decayed, taking with him everything but the bones. She only hoped he didn't feel it much. Grace pored over the book again and studied several others, She returned to the shops and the library and experts, but nobody had any answers. Before, she was willing to do anything for her son to be alive. Now, she'd do anything to let him rest. Weeping into the skies, she begged the powers above to collect his soul. But it was too late. Grace had cheated death, and her punishment was to keep what she stole. Weeks later, she gathered his bones and placed them into his old bassinet in the corner of her room. She tucked them into the blanket along with a toy and made sure he was most comfortable. Sometimes at night, she could hear the bones knocking against each other, and she knew that he hadn't disappeared. First thing in the morning, every morning, Grace went to see her son. She'd plan to kiss and hold his chin and remind him how much she loved him. Mommy's here, she would say, even though he couldn't hear her, for he was only bones. Mommy's Here, told by Shannon Lee Weber. children were always called Blue Eyes and Turkey. The elder was most like her dear father, who was far away at sea, and the mother would often say, Child, 
You've taken your father's eyes. For the father had the bluest of blue eyes. When the younger one was still a baby, her loud, rapid gurgling brought to mind the gobble of a beloved turkey that lived near the village. Along with a new baby, the mother and blue eyes and turkey all lived together in a lonely cottage at the edge of the forest. The forest was so near that the garden at the back seemed to be part of it, and the tall fir trees were so close that their big black arms stretched over the little thatched roof, and when the moon shone upon them, their tangled shadows were all over the whitewashed walls. It was a long way to the village, nearly a mile and a half, and the mother had to work very hard and had no time to go herself to see if there was a letter at the post office from the dear father. The two children were very proud of being able to go alone, and when they came back tired from the long walk, there would be the mother waiting and watching for them, and the tea would be ready and the baby crowing with delight, and if by any chance there was a letter from the sea, then they were very happy indeed. The cottage room was so cozy. The walls were as white as snow, and against them hung cake tins and baking dishes, the lid of a large saucepan, and the fish slice, polished and shining bright as ever. On one side of the fireplace, above the bellows, hung the clock that always struck the wrong hour and was always running down too soon. But it was a good clock, with a little picture on its face. The baby's high chair stood in one corner, and in another there was a cupboard hung up high, in which the mother kept all manner of little surprises. Dear children, the mother said one afternoon late in the autumn, It is very chilly for you to go to the village. Don't be long now. Go the nearest way, and don't look at any strangers you meet, and be sure you do not talk with them. She kissed them and called them dear good children, and they joyfully started on their way. The village was gayer than usual, for there had been a fair the day before, and the people who had made merry still hung about the streets as if reluctant to own that their holiday was over. Hmm, I wish we'd have come yesterday. Then we might have seen something. Look there! Turkey pointed to a stall covered with gingerbread, but the children had no money. At the end of the street, close to where the coaches stopped, an old man sat on the ground with his back resting against the wall of a house, and by him were two dogs— Evidently they were dancing dogs, the children thought, and longed to see them perform, but they seemed as tired as their master, and sat quite still beside him, looking as if they had not even a single wag left in their tails. Oh, I do wish we'd been here yesterday, Blue Eyes said again as they went on to the grocer's, which was also the post office. The postmistress was very busy weighing out half pounds of coffee, and when she had time to attend to the children, she only said that she had nothing for them, and went on with what she was doing. Blue Eyes and Turkey turned away to return home, back slowly down the village street, past the man with the dogs again. One dog now sat up rather crookedly, looking very melancholy and rather ridiculous. They had walked some way, and just before they reached the bridge, they noticed, resting against a pile of stones, a strange, dark figure— at first, they thought it was someone asleep. Then they thought it was a poor old woman, ill and hungry. And then they saw that it was a strange, wild-looking girl who seemed very unhappy, and they felt sure that something was the matter. So they thought they would ask her to see if there was anything they could do to help her. The girl seemed to be tall and about 15 years old. She was dressed in very ragged clothes. Around her shoulders there was an old brown shawl, which was torn at the corner that hung down the middle of her back. 
She wore no bonnet, and an old yellow handkerchief which she had tied around her head had fallen backwards and was all huddled up around her neck. Her hair was coal black and hung down, uncombed and unfastened, just anyhow. It was not very long, but it was very shiny, and it seemed to match her bright black eyes and her dark freckled skin. On her feet were coarse gray stockings and thick, shabby boots, which she had evidently forgotten to lace up. She had something hidden away under her shawl, but the children did not know what it was. She did not move or stir till they were within a yard of her. Then she wiped her eyes as if she had been crying bitterly and looked up. The children stood in front of her for a moment, wondering what they ought to do. "'Are you crying?' Turkey asked shyly. To their surprise, she said in an almost cheerful voice, "'Oh dear, no. Not at all. Quite the contrary. Are you?' They felt half a mind to walk away, for anyone could see that they were not crying. "'Perhaps you are lost?' "'Certainly not. How could I be lost when you have just found me? Besides, I live nearby.' The children were surprised at this, for they had never seen her before, and yet they thought they knew all the village folk by sight. "'What are you sitting on?' On a pear drum. The children wondered at the girl's most cheerful voice, for she looked cold and uncomfortable. What is a pear drum? I'm surprised you don't know. Most anyone in good society has one. And then she pulled it out and displayed it for them. The curious instrument was vaguely guitar-shaped, with three strings and two pegs by which to tune them. The third string was never tuned at all, and thus added to the singular effect produced by the village girl's music. And yet, oddly, the pear drum was not played by touching its strings, but by turning a little handle cunningly hidden on one side. But the strange thing about the pear drum was not the music it made, or the strings, or the handle, but a little square box attached to one side. The box had a little flat lid that appeared to be opened by a spring. That was all the children could make out at first. They were most anxious to see inside the box, or to know what it contained, but they thought it might look curious to say so. The girl looked at her instrument with affection. It really is a most beautiful thing, a pear drum. It cost a great deal of money. I am very rich. And this, the children thought, a really remarkable statement— for they had not supposed that rich people dressed in old clothes or went about without bonnets. She might at least have done her hair, they thought. You don't look rich, Turkey blurted in as polite a voice as possible. <laughs> Perhaps not. You look rather shabby. Indeed? Well, a little shabbiness is very respectable. Just ask the others. She picked up the little box by the side of the pear drum, and the children wondered what she meant. Opening it, she spoke inside, as if there was someone who could hear her. They've said I look rather shabby. Can you believe it? They don't believe I'm rich. You're not speaking to anyone. Oh, yes, I am. I'm speaking to them both. She looked down at the box in her hands. I have in here a little man and a little woman to match. He is dressed as a peasant, and she's in a red petticoat, with a white handkerchief pinned across her chest. When I play, they dance most beautifully. Oh, oh let us do, see! Let us see! The children cried with desperate curiosity. The village girl looked back at them with doubt in her eyes, finally saying, I'm afraid that I'm not sure if I can. Why not? Well, tell me, are you good children? Yes! Yes, yes, Ooh, yes we, we are, are very good. Very good. 
She closed the lid of the box as the children stared with astonishment. That was my worry. I'm afraid it's quite impossible. But, but we are, we good. are good. They cried again, thinking she had misheard. We are really very good, we promise. Mother always says so. Yes, I heard you before. Then can't you let us see the dancing man and woman? Oh dear, no. They can only be seen by naughty children. Naughty, naughty children? children? Oh yes. And the worse the children are, the better the dancing becomes. I really hoped to share it with you. I really did. If only you weren't so good. It was as if she was accusing them of some terrible crime. She put the pear drum carefully under her ragged cloak and prepared to go on her way. It requires a great deal of skill, being naughty. Well then, good day. And swiftly, she walked away. Will we find you in the village tomorrow? The girl continued on her way, while the children felt their eyes fill with tears and their hearts ache with disappointment. When their mother saw them, she was greatly astonished, and, fearing they were hurt, ran to meet them. Oh, my dear, dear children, what is the matter? But they did not dare tell their mother about the village girl. They promised that was wrong. But then why are you crying? Poor children, you must be tired and hungry. After tea, you'll feel much, much better. And she went back to the cottage, opening the window to let in the sweet, fresh air, and put the kettle on to boil. After placing the bread and tea things on the table, she called her daughters in a loving voice. Dear children, come and have your tea. But the children made no answer to their dear mother. They only stood still by the window and said nothing. Then Blue Eyes and Turkey turned round, and when they saw the tall loaf baked crisp and brown, and the cups all in a row and the jug of milk all waiting for them, they went to the table and sat down and felt a little happier. And the mother bounced the baby on her knee and sang little songs and laughed, and they thought of the father far away at sea and wondered what he would say to them all when he came home again. Then she looked up and saw that Turkey's eyes were full of tears. My dear little Turkey, what is the matter? Come to mother, my sweet. Come to your mother. Putting down the baby, she held out her arms, and Turkey, getting up from her chair, ran swiftly into them, sobbing. Oh, mother. Oh, dear mother. I do so want to be naughty. And then Blue Eyes left her chair also, and, rubbing her face against her mother's shoulder, cried sadly. And so do I, mother. Oh, I, I, I'd give anything to be very, very naughty. But, my dear children, why do you want to be naughty? I should be very angry if you were naughty. But you could never be, for it would make me so unhappy. Why couldn't we? The mother thought a while before she answered, and when she did so, they hardly understood, perhaps because she seemed to be speaking rather to herself than to them. Because if one truly loves, then that love is stronger than all the bad feelings and conquers them. If the love is real... Unkindness and wickedness have no power over it. The girls didn't know what she meant, and they continued crying. We do love you! We do! Huh. Then wipe the tears from your eyes. But we want to be naughty! Then I should know you did not love me. If we were very, very, very naughty and wouldn't be good, no matter what... I should try to make you better. But if you couldn't? The mother's eyes filled with tears a sob almost choking her. If you wouldn't be good, no matter what, I should have to go away and leave you. You couldn't. 
Yes, I could. But it would make me so unhappy. But we must have a mother. We're only children. I'd send you a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. But I will never leave you as long as you love me. We won't be naughty. We'll be good. We should hate the new mother, and she should never come here. And they clung to their own mother and kissed her fondly. But when they went to bed, they sobbed bitterly, for they remembered the little dancing man and woman and longed more than ever to see them. But how could they bear to hurt their own mother in that way? Good day. Blue Eyes and Turkey approached the girl, who was once again sitting by the heap of stones. It was as if she had never moved from the day before. The weather is really charming. The children took no notice of her greeting. Are the little man and woman there? Of course. They are both here and quite well. The little man tips his hat to the lady. It is so romantic. And the little woman has heard a secret. She tells it while she dances. The children begged to see. Quite impossible, I assure you. You are too good. But mother says if we are naughty, she will go away and send home a new mother. Indeed, that is what they all say. What do you mean? They all threaten that kind of thing. But I fear you could not be naughty even if you tried. Please show us, and we will be so naughty when we return home. Certainly not beforehand. But if we are very naughty tonight, will you show them to us when we return? Questions asked today are always better answered tomorrow. The girl turned round and walked on. For a few minutes, they stood still looking after her. Then they broke down and cried. Turkey was the first to wipe away her tears. Together, all the way home, they planned how to begin being naughty. And that afternoon, the dear mother was sorely distressed. For instead of sitting at their tea as usual with smiling, happy faces, they broke their mugs and threw their bread and butter on the floor. And when their mother told them to do one thing, they carefully went and did another. And as for helping to put away, they left her to do it all by herself and only stamped their feet with rage when she told them to go upstairs until they were good. We won't be good. We hate being good. We like being naughty very much. Don't you remember what I told you I should do if you were very, very naughty? There is no mother with a wooden tail and glass eyes, and if there were, we should just stick pins in her and send her away. But there is none. Then the mother's sadness became anger at last, and she sent them off to bed. They spent the night laughing with joy, jumping in their beds, and singing merry songs at the top of their voices. The next morning, without asking, the children got up and ran off as fast as they could over the fields towards the bridge to look for the village girl. She was sitting, as usual, by the heap of stones with the pear drum under her shawl. They told her the things they had done and how angry their mother had been. But the girl kept the pear drum carefully hidden. We were very naughty. So naughty we were sent to bed. If you were really naughty, you wouldn't have gone to bed at all. But, you see, you can't help it. It takes such skill to be naughty well. But we broke our mugs and... We dropped our bread to the floor. The kitchen was foul. Mere trifles. Did you throw cold water on the fire? Did you break the clock? Did you pull all the tins down from the walls and throw them on the floor? No, exclaimed the children, aghast. We could not do that. I thought not. So many people mistake a little noise and foolishness for real naughtiness. Well, good day. And before they could say another word, she had vanished. 
So the children went home and did all the things she said. They threw water on the fire. They pulled down the baking dish and the cake tin, the fish slice and the lid of the saucepan and banged them on the floor. They broke the clock and danced on the butter. They turned everything upside down. And then they sat still and wondered if they were naughty enough. And when the mother saw all that they had done, she did not scold them as she had before. She just broke down and cried, and then looked at the children and said sadly, My poor blue eyes and turkey, what has become of you? Unless you are good tomorrow, unless you show me that you love me, I shall indeed have to go away and come back no more. And the new mother I told you of will come to you. They did not believe her, yet their hearts ached when they saw how unhappy she looked, and they thought within themselves that once they had seen the little man and woman dance, they would be good forever afterwards. The next morning, before the birds were stirring or the flowers had wiped their eyes ready for the day, the children crept out of the cottage and ran across the fields. They did not think the village girl would be up so very early, but their hearts had ached so much at the sight of their mother's sad face that they had not been able to sleep, and they longed to know if they had been naughty enough, and if they might just once hear the pear drum and see the little man and woman dance. To their surprise, they found the village girl sitting by the heap of stones, and they noticed that the box containing the little man and woman was open, but she closed it quickly when she saw them. They excitedly told her everything they'd done. The girl looked at them curiously, then drew the yellow silk handkerchief that she sometimes wore around her head out of her pocket and began smoothing out the creases in it with her hands. You seem really quite excited. But the girl only went on smoothing out her handkerchief. I'm so very particular about my dress. They could hardly listen to her in their excitement. We have been so very naughty, and Mother says she will go away today and send home a new mother if we are not good. Indeed, there is an endless variety in language. The things people say are so singular and amusing. The children did not understand. But if she goes, what shall we do? People go and people come. First they go, and then they come. Perhaps she will go before she comes. She really couldn't come before she goes. Oh, you had better go back and be good. You're really not clever enough to be anything else. But we did all the things you told us. You didn't throw the looking glass out of the window or stand the baby on its head. No, we didn't do that. I thought not. Well, good day. I shall not be here tomorrow. Please just let us see them once. Well, I shall go past your cottage at 11 o'clock this morning. Perhaps I shall play the pear drum as I go by. And will you show us the man and woman? Quite impossible, unless you really deserved it. Make-believe naughtiness is only spoiled goodness. It's a waste of time, I fear. But of course, I should not like to interfere with you. 11 o'clock, I shall be quite punctual. I'm very particular about my engagements. Then again the children went home and were naughty, oh, so very, very naughty that the dear mother's heart ached and her eyes filled with tears and at last she went upstairs and slowly put on her best gown and her new sunbonnet. And she dressed the baby all in its Sunday clothes and then she came down and stood before Blue Eyes and Turkey. And just as she did so, Turkey threw the looking glass out of the window and it fell with a loud crash upon the ground. <laughs> Goodbye, my children. Goodbye, my blue eyes. Goodbye, my turkey. Oh, my poor children. <laughs> 
Weeping bitterly, the mother kissed the children and took the baby into her arms. The new mother will be here presently. It seemed as if the children were spellbound and they could not follow her. They opened the window wide and called after her, but the mother only looked round and shook her head, and they could see the tears falling down her cheeks. They cried and cried, but still the mother went across the fields. Just before she could no longer be seen, she stopped and turned and waved her handkerchief, all wet with tears, to the children at the window. She made the baby kiss its hand, and in a moment, mother and baby had vanished from their sight. Then the children felt their hearts ache with sorrow, and they cried bitterly just as their mother had done, and they could not believe that she had gone. Surely she would come back, they thought. She would not leave them all together, but oh, if she did. And then the broken clock struck eleven, and they looked at each other while their hearts stood still, and they rushed to the open window. They saw the village girl coming towards them from the fields, dancing along and playing the pear drum as she did so. Behind her, walking slowly, was the man with the dogs whom they had seen on the first day they met the girl. He was playing a flute with a strange, shrill sound, and after the man followed the two dogs, slowly waltzing round and round on their hind leg. We have done all you told us, Blue Eyes called when she had recovered from the astonishment. Come and see. The girl did not cease her playing or her dancing, but called out above the music, You did it all badly. You threw the water on the wrong side of the fire. The tin things were not quite in the middle of the room. The clock was not broken enough. You did not stand the baby on its head. But our mother has gone away. Show us the little man and woman now and let us hear the secret. The girl was just in front of the cottage, but she did not stop playing. The sound of the strings seemed to go through their hearts. She did not stop dancing. She was already passing by the cottage. And still the man followed her, playing shrilly on his flute. And still the two dogs waltzed round and round after him. On they went, all of them, together. The children ran from the house, begging the girl to stop and show them the dancing couple. She turned around, still dancing to the music, and held the box out before them. The little man and the woman have gone away. See, their box is empty. And then, for the first time, the children saw that the lid of the box was raised and hanging back, and that no little man and woman were in it. But our mother is gone! Will she ever come back? The girl turned and continued on towards the long road leading out of the city. No, she'll never come back. I saw her by the bridge. She took a boat up on the river. She is sailing to the sea. She will meet your father once again, and they will go sailing to countries far away. The children cried out but could say no more, for their hearts seemed to be breaking. Then the girl, her voice getting fainter and fainter in the distance, called out once more to them before vanishing altogether. Your new mother is coming. She is already on her way. The children looked at each other, and the little cottage home, that only a week before had been so bright and happy, so cozy and so spotless. The fire was out, and the tins and dishes and bits of bread were all lying on the floor, and there was the broken clock, no time on its face. There was the cupboard on the wall, no sweet surprise on its shelf, and the baby's high chair, but no little baby to sit in it. In the midst of it all stood the children, looking at the wreck they had made. I wish we had never seen the village girl at all. Surely mother will come back. She knows we shall die if she doesn't come back. I don't know what we shall do if the new mother comes. I shall never, never like any other mother. 
we won't let her in. We will bolt the door and shut the window, and we won't take any notice when she knocks. So they bolted the door and shut the window, and all through the afternoon they sat watching and listening for fear of the new mother. But they saw and heard nothing of her, and gradually they became less and less afraid lest she should come. When it was dinner time, they were very hungry, but they could only find some stale bread. Then they thought that perhaps when it was dark, their own dear mother would come home, and she would forgive them. And then Blue Eyes thought that when their mother returned, she would be very cold. So they crept out the back door to gather wood, and at last they made a fire. With the fire burning bright, they began to be happy again, and to feel certain that their own mother would return. And the sight of the pleasant fire reminded them of all the times she had waited for them to come home from the post office, and of how she had welcomed them and comforted them and given them nice warm tea and sweet bread and talked to them. Oh, how sorry they were they had been naughty, and all for that nasty village girl. They did not care a bit about the little man and woman now or want to hear the secret. They fetched a pail of water and washed the floor. They scrubbed the tins till they looked bright again, and, putting a footstool on a chair, carefully hung the things in their places. And then they picked up the broken mugs and made the room as neat as they could. They took down the tea tray and got out the cups and put the kettle on the fire to boil, and made everything look as homelike as they could, till it looked as if their dear mother's hands had been busy about it. At last all was ready, and Blue Eyes and Turkey washed their faces and their hands, and then sat and waited. The children had fallen asleep, and the fire was dim and low when a loud knocking at the door woke them at the table. Their hearts stood still as the terrible knocking rang again. They knew it could not be their own mother, for she would have turned the handle and tried to come in without knocking at all. The new mother is here. What shall we do? We won't let her in. And again came a loud and horrible knocking at the door. We won't go away! The awful hammering continued. Blue Eyes, in fear and trembling, put her back against the door as Turkey went to the window, peeping out. She could just see a black satin bonnet with a frill around the edge and a long, bony arm carrying a black leather bag. For a second, she swore she saw the flashing of two glass eyes. What shall we do? The door shook and rattled with the terrible knocking. Afraid it would break, Turkey joined with her back against the door, and the rattling stopped. For a long, terrible moment, all was still. Perhaps the new mother had made up her mind to go away. And then, with a fearful blow, the little painted door was cracked and splintered. With a shriek, the children darted from the spot and fled out the back door into the forest beyond. All night long, they stayed in the darkness and the cold, and all the next day, and when the darkness had fallen and the night was still once again, hand in hand, Blue Eyes and Turkey crept back to the home where they were once so happy, and, with beating hearts, they looked through the window. The mother was at the stove. Her long, heavy wooden tail thumped into the cabinets as she turned, blinding the children with the glare of her cracked glass eyes. The New Mother, told by Dana Maisel, featuring Joyce Cloudin, Hannah Mary Simpson, 
and Ashlyn C. Hafer. Adapted from the story by Lucy Clifford. In a small town 200 years ago, there lived a woman on her own. You'd think her neighbors would be impressed by her ability to sustain herself alone, but back then, it just alienated her. Rumors spread about the dark and dirty things she'd do, and she got used to keeping to herself. After meeting one summer night, she found herself entangled with the mayor's son. In the cover of warm darkness, their identities didn't matter. He was free from his last name, and she was free from hearsay. Meet me here again. Tomorrow? I wouldn't be anywhere else. They met again and again in secret, lasting almost a year before she found herself with child. It didn't matter to her what others would think, nor did she consider the implications of sharing this news with her lover. She was overjoyed. And sure, he'd be eager to provide his child with nothing but the best. Yet when she delivered the news, his face went cold. The light in his eyes vanished, and his forehead creased intensely. She repeated the news, thinking he may have misheard. Don't you see what a mistake you've made? She couldn't pull enough air in her lungs to say a word. My father would never accept you or your bastard child. What makes you think anyone else would? You've ruined everything. His attendants arrived to guide her away, and she didn't have the will to fight. In an instant, the man she loved became a stranger, and everything she held so dear had been ripped away from her. His eyes had said it all. She was no longer welcome here. With a heart shattered beyond repair, she collected her belongings and fled to the woods. There, she built a small shack with her own two hands, and by the time her daughter arrived, they had a suitable home. Despite the woman's best efforts, she saw her daughter as a nuisance, a reminder of the happy life she'd never live. As Sarah grew to walk and talk, her mother only resented her more. Sarah was banished to the dark and dingy cellar, a damp, infested pit underneath the house, and her mother lived above in solitude. Sarah was given only the smallest bits of sustenance to keep her alive, and over the years, she grew up in darkness. Waiting for the days to pass, waiting for her mother to have a change of heart, waiting for anything, any sort of change, any sort of kindness. Many nights, her mother would run away into the woods to fetch food or other goods. As soon as Sarah saw her disappear into the trees through the basement grate, she would wail to the sky. She was desperate for her cries to reach someone, anyone who could save her from her daily pain. 
She'd cry until her voice and energy had completely run their course and would fall asleep by the time her mother returned home by the light of the moon. But one night, someone did hear Sarah's calls. A group of children exploring the forest heard a terrible, painful sound and followed it as it got louder and louder. They found a shack of a house that barely stood out from the dense trees around it. The sounds were coming from the side of the building, where there was a small grated window no larger than a hat box. Through the rusted grating, the children could just make out the whites of Sarah's eyes. At first, she was afraid to speak to them. She had never met a strange face. But the children were kind. They asked her questions. Before she knew it, she shared her entire story of being locked away from her mother's abuse. The children listened silently to every word. When she was finished, they thanked her and told her they'd return one day. Whenever that was, she thought, it couldn't be soon enough. Not long after, an even larger group of children came to visit. Sarah was thrilled by the company, and since she had already shared her story, she made up something else. She pulled from her private hell of darkness and solitude, of crying out in vain, of never feeling love, the children devoured each and every word. As time passed, Sarah begged the children not to return so often. It was harder to keep them quiet, and they never knew when her mother could return. But the kids loved Sarah, and Sarah loved her audience. She'd remind them of the risk, and they'd distract her with fruits and candies before disappearing back into the trees, headed towards villages she'd never see herself. Then one night, Sarah's worst fear came true. Get away from there! Her mother shrieked, running towards the house, and the children gathered around the grate. They screamed and scattered, and Sarah knew to expect something dreadful as her mother descended the stairs. What did you tell them? What were you saying? It was nothing. I was telling them a story. You will never see those kids again. Sarah was frozen in fear. The last thing she saw was her mother picking up a metal spoon before her eyes were gouged from their sockets. After that, Sarah continued to cry out into the darkness, though of course there were no tears falling down her cheeks. Weeks passed, but the children did return. First, they were scared of her change in appearance, the stained bandages wrapped around her head. But they were easily distracted by another story, this time about the witch who lived upstairs. The children wanted to set her free, but didn't know how. One boy offered a scrap of parchment and a pencil, vowing to deliver a message for Sarah and return with help. She took the items, unsure of what to do with them, and though she thought she'd hidden them sufficiently, they were easily spotted when her mother reappeared the following morning. What is this? But Sarah didn't know. What are you doing with this? Who taught you to write? I just wanted to tell them a story. Give me your hands. But Sarah refused. Give me your hands. So Sarah did. 
And though she couldn't see it, her mother was holding a cleaver, which came down with such force that it cut through her wrists, even though it wasn't sharp at all. You'll never use those hands again! Her mother was gone. Unable to see and unable to use her hands for sight, Sarah began to waste away. The children hadn't come back in so long, and Sarah no longer wept to the sky. Much time passed before Sarah heard her mother heading back into town by moonlight. Then, a familiar rustle she hadn't heard in forever. The children had returned with all of her strength. She rose and stepped towards the window, beckoning the children to respond, offering a story, a secret, anything to keep her company. But it wasn't a child who responded. It was her mother who hadn't gone to town at all. And it was her mother who came back into the house with a large pair of rusty scissors. And it was her mother who used those scissors to cut out Sarah's tongue. You will never tell your stories again. No one knows what happened next. Sarah, without her senses, likely withdrew into the darkness... And the children never returned, until it was too late. Where the shack once stood was now a clearing burned into the middle of the woods. The same clearing where we sit tonight. Some say Sarah's mother finally had enough and decided to kill them both. Others think a brave child came back to put Sarah out of her misery. What we do know is that on the first anniversary of the fire, the children returned and built a campfire of their own. They told each other the stories that Sarah had shared, believing this to be the best way to honor her spirit. And thus, the tale of Sarah Boogie Woman was born. Some say if you come out here alone... You can hear Sarah wailing into the sky. Or if it's really quiet, you can catch the whisper of a creepy tale. Just make sure her mother never catches you. The Boogie Woman Written by Brian Renaud and Savannah Ray. Told by Shannon Lee Weber. Featuring Serafina Vecchio, Aaron Holland, and Shayna Somerville. My mom was watching Jesse, our newborn, and my wife and I were on our way to see a house we hoped to rent. Molly was relocating for work, and we didn't have much time to put things in order. I was excited for the change, though a bit hesitant to pack up our lives and move so quickly. The house was brick and fairly nondescript. There were neighbors a couple hundred yards away on each side, close enough to feel suburban, but far enough to feel like everyone has their own space. Molly pulled up and parked along the curb, even though the driveway was clear. We got out of the car, and as we walked toward the house, a tall man with shaggy white hair came out, shielding the sun from his eyes. He was quiet and weak, and his name, he said, was Mr. Hart. He was a little weird, but nice enough that we brushed it off. We toured the home. 
It was suitable for what we needed, but never something I would have picked out if I had a choice. As we finished the tour, Mr. Hart offered to give us a few minutes alone. Molly had that look in her eyes where I knew her mind was already made. She insisted we should apply. If the approval came through in a week, we'd be able to move right after and she'd only have to commute from our old place for a few days. It did make sense. I agreed and sat in the car while they talked details. When Molly came back, she was beaming. We're already approved. What? He just wants to get rid of the place. He used to live here with his wife, and when she died, he couldn't stay without her. It's so sad. I mean, he hates showing the place. He was practically convincing me that we should take it. I already got him a check. I felt this was kind of odd, but didn't want to rain on the excitement. We were free to move in as early as the next day and would take care of the paperwork later. When we arrived with our truck, the house key was waiting under the mat. A few days passed and we'd gotten everything in. It was my first time being alone in the house with the baby with Molly at work. The laundry was in the basement and while the baby napped upstairs, I went down to put a load in. The stairs came down in the middle of the basement and then you had to take a sharp turn and walk all the way towards the back to get to the washer and dryer. Above them was this large fluorescent light encased in a red plastic shield and a metal grate. It basically looked like an emergency light. I turned it on and it emitted a deep, monstrous hum. Every corner of the basement illuminated in a ghastly blood-red glow. I couldn't imagine what it was used for, but I certainly didn't need it. I quickly turned it back off and threw the laundry in. As I got to the top of the stairs, I heard a click followed once again by a deep, familiar hum. I turned around, and sure enough, the basement was once again glowing red. I took a breath and took the first step, then the next. I probably didn't turn the switch back off all the way, and the vibrations of the laundry pushed the light back on. This logical thought gave me the confidence I needed to round the corner and return to the back of the basement, where I flipped the light back off once again. The humming stopped, and I stood in the quiet glow of a single light bulb at the foot of the stairs. I looked again to the red light and saw it had its own plug. I followed the cord and yanked it from the outlet. As I reached the top of the stairs, I heard the hum again. Pins and needles ran through my entire body. I closed my eyes, took a breath, and turned around. The basement was glowing red. I took one step down. What was I going to do? I took the next. The humming grew louder. I reached the bottom of the staircase and turned towards the light. Just as I confirmed with my eyes that it was still unplugged, it snapped, flickered, and turned off. I stood there for a moment, listening to my own breath. And then, the light came on again. I stepped towards it, and it clicked off. I waited and took another step. It clicked on again. I kept moving across the basement, and the flickering grew faster and faster, the humming louder and louder. The strobing made it almost impossible to see. I reached toward the grating. (gasps) Every light in the basement went out at once. I ran as quickly as I could, smashing into old boxes and furniture as I made my way by the dim light bleeding down the stairs. I climbed up on all fours and slammed the door behind me, trying to catch my breath. I heard the baby crying in his bedroom. When Molly got home, I could tell she didn't believe me, even though she saw how upset I was. She went downstairs alone to replace the bulb that had blown out. The red light wouldn't work for her, even after plugging it back in and flipping the switch. Still, she removed the grate and took it down at my request. A few days later, 
I'd almost forgotten about what had happened. I got a little nervous doing laundry, but with the red light off the wall, I was able to convince myself that Molly was right. We were safe. Jesse was once again down for his afternoon nap, and Molly was working. I was watching daytime TV and unpacking boxes when there was a sudden loud knock on the door. I turned the TV off and wiped off my hands, getting quickly to the door. But there was nobody there. I hadn't seen any kids around the neighborhood, but I don't know. I guess I assumed it must have been a joke. I shut the door and went back to the boxes. I was busy and stressed, and it was kind of easy to just put it behind me. But then, a little while later, it happened again. I rushed to the door without missing a beat, but once again there was no one there. I stepped out onto the front porch and took a long look in each direction. No one. I went back inside and decided to check on the baby. He was gurgling in the crib, so I picked him up and walked around with him for a bit before I sat down with him in the rocking chair. Before I knew it, we had both dozed off. Another knock and it was loud, but I was upstairs far from the front door. How could it have been? My heart sank as I realized the sound hadn't come from the front door. The knock came from the bedroom door that I didn't remember closing. Molly, I asked. Nothing. My heart was throbbing and my mouth was dry. I gently put the baby back in his crib and took a cautious step toward the door. Molly? I nearly screamed and rushed to lock the door. Falling to my knees, I looked through the crack into the hallway. But there was no one there. I stayed locked in that room with Jesse until Molly got home. I was too scared to do anything else. Molly suggested having my mother come stay for a few days, but I knew I was ready to leave. She wouldn't have it. Babe, it's just the sounds of an old house settling. You'll get used to it. As always, she was able to calm me down. I plan to start spending our days away from the house, running errands or visiting the park. The less time in the house without Molly, the better. But only a bit later, we were watching a movie on the couch when... We were both startled by a large thud directly above us, like something heavy had hit the floor hard. This was Jesse's room. Without saying a word, we bolted up the stairs. We could hear the baby shrieking. As we opened the door, I expected Jesse's crying to get louder, but it remained muffled. The bright moonlight came through the windows and the heavy antique curtains had been torn down, left in a tall heap on the floor. The crying was coming from inside the pile. We threw everything aside, digging towards the sound before Molly pulled Jesse from the curtains. Thank God he wasn't hurt, but it was enough of a scare. Molly finally agreed. She'd call Mr. Hart tomorrow and discuss our options. The three of us slept together in one room that night with all the lights on. The next day, Molly was busy trying to reach Mr. Hart and sort out missing a few days of work while I repacked the boxes that I had unloaded. The baby never left my sight. Of course, we cared about the money we'd lose in rent, but it was more important for us to feel safe. I found myself terrified to do anything in that house. We'd gotten a moving truck and Molly planned to stay in a hotel while Jesse and I went back home to my mother's for a bit. Anything was better than there. Jesse needed his teething ring, which we'd left upstairs. I didn't want to go upstairs alone, but I couldn't pull Molly from the phone and it would only take a second. I grabbed a box of Jesse's things and stepped towards the door, but tripped and fell hard, spilling baby clothes onto the large throw rug that covered the original floors. A few of the rooms had rugs like these when we moved in. Somehow, the rug had gotten bunched up. As I bent over to fix it, I instead decided to pull it up, walking backwards towards the center of the room. In the middle of the floor was a large, deep brown stain covering the floorboards, exactly where we'd found Jesse the night before. 
I dropped the carpet and ran down the stairs to get Molly, but she didn't acknowledge me. She was staring at something confused. After a few moments, she turned to me and handed me a check. The check she'd written for Mr. Hart on the day we met. It had never been cashed. It had never left the house. Standing in the sun by the truck, I felt a massive sense of relief knowing I'd never have to go inside again. As we loaded up the last of our things, a neighbor I'd never seen made his way down the street toward us. I never got the chance to come and introduce myself, and you're already on the way out. I know, I'm so sorry, I said. We've had a last-minute change of plans. I was honestly surprised to see anyone come into the place, being forward with you. I asked him to elaborate. His wife. She was old and sick, bedridden. But she hated relying on him for everything. She wanted to open the curtains and let some light in, but she couldn't reach him on her own. She pulled over a stool and stretched for the corner when... Her husband knocked on the door. It scared her so bad they say she fell face first toward the floor, smashed her whole face in. The worst part? Her husband somehow didn't hear a thing. So he assumed she was asleep. He went downstairs and made dinner while she bled out on the floor. Do you know which room this was? She had the room upstairs, in the front of the house. His eyes lifted to the windows of the room that, until today, had belonged to my infant son. I felt sick. Thanks for telling me, I said. That poor old man, it's so terrible. But I wish he had mentioned all that to us when we met him. The neighbor looked back at me like I had lost my mind. You couldn't have met him, he said. The night he found her, he hanged himself in the same room. Mr. Hart has been dead for months. Knock Knock, written by Brian Renaud, told by Angie Campbell, featuring Shannon Lee Weber and Aaron Holland. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young girl who lived deep in the dark, dark forest. Her name was Mary. Mary was the mirror image of her doting, adoring mother. They shared rich auburn hair, shiny blue eyes, and a laugh like wind chimes. Though they lived far from any village, they were content. Her mother filled her childhood with every trinket, every toy, every tiny bit of joy she could provide her beloved daughter. Every day, the little girl would wander through the wood, picking berries and herbs. Every night, her mother would make her daughter tea and read until she fell asleep. Though Mary loved her mother, sometimes she would grow lonely. And during those times, she learned to make friends in the forest. Fairies, unicorns, imaginary friends. She loved the woods, but she knew to fear it, too. Witches ride at night. Her mother would tell her, Wrapping her arms of protection around Mary's shuddering shoulders. Monsters awake from their slumber and wolves devour all they find. At age 11, Mary and her mother had a fight. In front of the same fire, reading the same stories, drinking the same tea as they did night after night after night. Mary told her mother she was bored, that she never let her go anywhere, that she was going crazy. And for a moment... Her mother's eyes flashed with something Mary had never seen before. 
something like fire. But as soon as it was there, it was gone, and Mary's mother sobbed. That night, Mary took the teacups into the kitchen, and in that kind of silent, petty revenge teenagers excel in, she dumped the rest of her tea out instead of finishing it. And that's the night she heard the monster. Mary had never woken up in the middle of the night before, but here she was, awake, with the shining moon high overhead. She wondered at the vastness of the night sky, her breath fogging the glass in her window. And then she heard it. It came from directly below Mary's bedroom. It was the loudest, most heart-wrenching, terrible scream she had ever heard. The walls shook with it. Birds fled the trees, flying across the moon. Whatever it was, it screamed, and it screamed, and it screamed. Mary buried her face into her pillow, plugging her ears with all her might. But the screaming continued to haunt her, and she lied awake until she saw the sun. Mother? Did you hear the wailing last night? The plate her mother was drying had fallen to the floor. My dearest, you must have had a nightmare. No, I was awake. I kept hearing the most horrible sounds. Mary's mother raced to her beloved daughter and wrapped her in her arms. Oh, my darling, you heard one of the monsters of the forest. Like I've told you, the night is when they rule this earthly plane. But in the morning, the monsters are gone. That night... Mary's mother watched as she drank every drop of her tea. That convinced her. Mary didn't know why her mother was drugging her asleep, but she was determined to find out. So Mary got clever. It took some time, but she learned how to sneak mouthfuls of tea back into the cup, pour it into plants behind her mother's back. And in that time, she heard more and more every night. Thumps. Moans, weeping, unearthly gurgling cries, all at night, all from below her floorboards. Weeks later, Mary convinced her mother to let her take her tea to her room so she could read in bed. Instead, she dumped the tea out of the window. With all her wits about her, she was determined to find the truth. Late that night, she waited for the first of the moans. When it came, she stole from her bed, peeled back her rug, and pressed her ear to the floorboards. And she knocked. It heard her. Uh, hello? The sounds were moving. Keeping her ear to the floor, she followed the thumps across the floorboards, up the wall, out her door, and down the hall, and there they stopped. Mary's mother was a weaver, and her masterpiece tapestry hung in the hallway. It told the story of a blue-eyed princess falling in love with a prince with corn-blonde hair and eyes green as emeralds. It came from right behind the tapestry. But how? Mary's fingers found the edges of the fairy tale tapestry and peeled them back. A door. Mary reached for the handle, took a deep breath, and pulled darkness. She grabbed an oil lamp, lit it, and made her way down the narrow secret passageway, colder and colder with each dirty stone step. 
The light from the oil lamp reached into the shadows, embracing and exposing the space within. It was a room the exact size of Mary's, but inverse. Instead of a goose feather bed, there was a filthy pile of straw. The room's only decoration were two framed pictures, lit by the light of the moon creeping in from a single barred grate, serving as its only window. Mary crept to the pictures, raising her lamp to the first. It was her mother, younger, happier, with a handsome, gorgeous man, a man with hair blonde as corn, eyes green as emeralds. The second picture was her mother as well, looking worn, tired, a forced smile but fury in her eyes, flanked by two little girls, young enough not to remember that day, one the spitting image of her mother, the other with hair the color of corn and eyes green as emeralds. Suddenly Mary knew she was not alone. As she slowly turned her head, she saw her. It was like looking into a cursed, inverted mirror. The bloody, mangled girl stumbled her way to Mary. Bruised arms reached out for her as if to grasp her. If they could, she didn't have any hands. Mary's hands shook, but her heart swelled, and she placed her hands on the bloody, eyeless face of her sister. And Mary realized she had been mistaken. The monster had been living upstairs the whole time. Mary grasped her sister tight as low, gurgling sobs escaped her tongueless mouth. Mary whispered into her undamaged ears, I'll get you out of here, I promise! And for a moment, it seemed possible, beautifully possible. But then they heard wind chimes. The monster had found them. Mary, sweetest, go back upstairs. We know there was a struggle. No, not without my sister. And there was a knife. You were never meant to know. And Mary failed to save her sister. But oil lamps are fickle things. And straw is so flammable. And teenage girls are strong creatures, especially when they have watched a sister die. And doors are so easily locked. <laughs> Mary fled the burning house, determined to find peace for her sister. She found answers in occult teachings and blood knowledge. She learned that sometimes terrible things anchor us. Terrible things like dying in your dungeon with the one who locked you there. So she made a plan to set her sister free. A blood ritual, a conjuring spell to bring Sarah back. Her sister deserved revenge against the town who knew she suffered and did nothing to stop it. Mary Bogan created the Boogie Woman. And now, Sarah is free. Sarah is free. Sarah is free. Mary's Story Written by Savannah Ray and Brian Renaud Told by Dana Maisel Featuring Serafina Vecchio and Shayna Somerville 